From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. There are good dads out there in the world, and there are some not-so-good ones. And even the good ones aren't perfect, but we'd like to think that the vast majority of dads out there are decent guys who are trying their very best. But what if you were to find out something about your dad? Something very, very dark. Something absolutely terrifying. A long-held secret that takes everything you thought you knew about your father and burned it to the ground. What if that secret, that he kept for his entire life finally started to surface after his death. And what if what you begin to discover is that your dad may have been one of the most prolific serial killers of all time? This week's guest experienced that very thing. And not only that, but his background as a highly successful homicide detective resulted in him being the one who finally put all of the pieces together. In part one of a two-part interview... I talk with Steve Hodell, who has written multiple books containing the story and evidence that points directly to his father, George Hodell, as being the one responsible for not only the murder of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, but many other unsolved murders over the course of a long career as a brutal and sadistic serial killer. Welcome to this week's episode, George Hodell and the Black Dahlia, on From the Void. All right. Welcome to the podcast. It's a thrill to have uh, Steve Hodell on. I've been following your work for a long time, so I've been uh, been very excited to ask you some questions about your ongoing investigations. So tell us a little bit about your background first and what makes you so uniquely qualified for this particular uh, project. Okay. Great to be with you, John. Uh, born in Los Angeles in 1941, uh, 17 years old. I joined the Navy for four years. Uh, then got out and basically did what most uh, 21-year-olds uh, did back then was sign up for LAPD <laughs> and uh, four years military. And then I did four or five years in patrol and uh, then went to Hollywood Division, was working patrol there and went from there to detectives in 1969. I came on in 63 and basically worked all the different tables, robbery, uh, table, uh, burglary, car thefts, juvenile, sex crimes, and basically, uh, you know, went over and finally became uh, working the homicide table. Basically stayed at Hollywood Division, and that's like a, a precinct on the East Coast. They call them precincts. We call them divisions out here on the West. And uh, worked uh, homicide for 17 years, uh, basically uh, 300 murder cases, had one of the highest solve rates on the department, and it wasn't just me. It was a team of us, four, four detectives working together, uh, uh, and uh, basically retired in 1986, Had uh, was married, had two small boys. Uh, they were about five and seven then. Decided to get out of the mean streets of, of Los Angeles back then in the mid-'80s. 
and a lot of gang activity and stuff. So we moved, went north, wound up in Bellingham, Washington, which is like the last stop before Canada. And uh, boys in school there and got a home and basically uh, stayed there for 10 years and uh, was working as a PI, uh, cr criminal defense, actually, 25 years on the prosecution. And then I went to the defense side and uh, criminal defense work. And basically, was everything was going swimmingly until uh, I got that 2 a.m. phone call uh, from my, uh, my, my uh, stepmother, uh, June, in San Francisco. And she says, your father's uh, just collapsed. The paramedics are here. Uh, they've just pronounced him dead. Come down. So I did flew down immediately, did all the things you have to do to um, uh, the passing of a father or relative. And uh, we're sitting there day two after his passing and talking and stuff. And June says she walks out and she hands me a small book, a small photo album, about three by five inch, five by five inches. And she says, I think your father would want you to have this. She hands it to me, and I'm going through it. And there's pictures of me, my brothers. I had two brothers. There were th three sons. And my mother and friends and, and stuff. And I, I came across this photo of a dark-haired, semi-nude, appeared-to-be-nude, reclining young woman. And I said, uh, June, who is this? She says, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. And, the, and it looked familiar to me. And... Um, I couldn't place it, but for some reason, and to this day, I don't know why Black Dahlia came to mind, uh, but it did. And um, I'm, it just kind of came and went. And it may have been because I had seen a, a television movie in 1975 uh, called Who is the Black Dahlia, which was a made-for-TV movie. And the face and that hair and everything looked exactly like it. So that could have been the source. I don't know. But anyway, I didn't think much of it. It came and left. And um, uh, so, so then basically uh, uh, do the things you have to do to take care of the burial and all that. His ashes were buried at sea as at his as his direction. And I'm talking to my half-sister, Tamar, on the telephone a couple of days later. And uh, uh, basically uh, she's... And now maybe maybe we should do a biography on Dad, because uh, to really understand this whole story, you kind of have, have to understand his remarkable life, and and what a remarkable individual he was. Do, do you want me to go into that or? Yeah, that's actually one of the questions I was going to ask after you kind of got clued into the fact that uh, perhaps your dad was at one point a suspect. Okay. In one of the most famous murders of all time, um, tell people a little bit about you know who he was, and uh, he was a very intelligent guy with a. Pretty yeah. impressive background, but tell tell people a little bit about what he did. Okay, let's, a quick bio on him is born in Los Angeles, downtown across the street from the Biltmore of all places, and um, which we'll figure later in the story. But um, uh, he he was uh, born fifth and grand and um, uh, grew up in Los Angeles, only child. Uh, my grandparents, his mother and father, were from Russia. They. Uh, through Paris, they they got out of Russia, and uh, she was actually his his mother was actually a dentist in Paris in 1901. Very very unusual, highly intelligent woman. Uh, they came through Ellis Island in the early at the turn of the century, 
came out to Los Angeles, and Dad was born in 1907. Um, uh, so basically, uh, at age five or six, he and his mother went back to Paris for a year, and he, he enrolled in the Montessori School in Paris, which had just opened. He was there just a year, and they returned, came back here, entered high school at South Pasadena, uh, entered elementary and high school, had the highest scores of any student in the state back then, uh, high intelligence, his IQ 186, one point above Einstein. Incidentally, that skips a generation, so my, my boys are in good <laughs> shape. <laughs> and um, uh, he was a musical prodigy. At age nine, he's playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium here in Los Angeles. His music teacher predicts a, a brilliant future as a pianist. Um, he graduates three years early from high school at uh, 14 and enters Caltech, the prestigious uh, Caltech University here in Pasadena. And uh, he begins there, he's, he's there a year and not only is he highly intellectual and uh, a musical prodigy, but he's also sexually precocious. He has he has an affair with a professor's wife. She gets pregnant, breaks up her marriage. She goes back east. He's of course asked to leave after a year, Caltech. He goes back, says, "I love you. I want to marry you." and this, this professor's wife says, George, you're a child yourself. Get out of my life. Go away. I never want to see you again. She has the child, which she aptly names Folly. And, uh, you know, and he comes back still, you know, so now he's 16, 17, gets a job as a fake ID, pass, as a chauffeur's license at 21, drives yellow cab out of the Biltmore uh, for a while with another young uh, guy that's going to law school. And his name is... William H. Parker, and Parker, of course, will become our most famous police chief ever uh, later on in the in the in the early fifties. Uh, Dad does the cabbing for a while, and then he goes and he joins. He becomes a journalist with the L.A. Record, which is one of the major newspapers here in Los Angeles. They had five or six, and uh, as a crime reporter. Now this is in the mid twenties. This is prohibition. He's riding around with LAPD Vice, kicking door, they're kicking doors, speakeasies, you know, the judge's wife with a young blonde. He's writing these tabloid stories in the newspaper. He then graduates and goes with the big boys and starts riding around with LAPD homicide to their crime scenes and writing these, ta again, these tabloid, the ace of, bloody ace of spades next to the body, that sort of thing. Um, he starts double dating in his teen, in his late teens, 17, 18 now, uh, with a young man by the name of John Houston. And John Houston is, at that time, just the famous, the son of the famous actor Walter Houston, who was a stage and screen actor of, of qu quite some note. And uh, John would later, of course, become the famous film director of Maltese Falcon and uh, many other classic films. Anyway, they're double dating, and John is dating a woman by the name of Emilia, and George is dating Dorothy. And then a few weeks down the road, they switch, and John and Dorothy fall in love. They run off to Greenwich Village, get married, and, John, and George looks at Emily and says, I guess it's you and me, babe. <laughs> and and he, uh, uh, she gets uh, pregnant, 
They go north to Berkeley. He enrolls in medical school, four years pre-med at Berkeley. Then he goes across to uh, San, UCSF, San Francisco, gets his medical degree, has another affair during this time with another woman, another uh, woman by the name of Dorothy, not the original one. She gets pregnant. And that, uh, so, well, yeah, Emily has a son named um, Duncan, who's born in 1928. Then, uh, Dorothy has has a daughter named Tamar, who's born in 1935. So he's got the two women, he's got the two ch young children, or three actually, and um, he just graduates in 36, gets his medical degree, decides he needs some space to get away from all this, leaves them, goes to Arizona, New Mexico, becomes the sole surgeon at a logging camp, uh, CCC, Roosevelt's camps back then. And um, he does that for a year, year and a half, uh, doctors to the Hopi and Navajo reservations, does that for a year, comes back to L.A. and joins the L.A. County Health Department, quickly rises to the top, becomes the uh, head VD control officer for all of L.A. County, uh, in charge of venereal disease control at the time. We're now in, we're now in the late 30s. Um, he, Dorothy, who's now broken up after seven-year marriage with Houston, comes back to L.A. They hook back up. My older brother Mike's born in 39. I come along in 41. And my younger brother Kelvin comes along in 42. So here's Dad, the head of L.A. County Health Department, with a beautiful wife, three young babies, and he buys a Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. home in Hollywood, which is this uh, very iconic uh it's a Mayan temple. It looks like right off a set. And we move in there, and he's doctoring to the rich and famous. He becomes um, close friends with Arthur Miller, the writer. He becomes uh, friends with uh, a lot of the surrealists. Man Ray, who was a famous uh, surrealist photographer and painter, becomes our family photographer. Um, and everything goes along swimmingly for uh, a number of years. And then there's this knock at the door at the Mayan temple and Dr. Hodel, yes, uh, LAPD, you're under arrest for incest. <laughs> Turns out that during these set parties and the wild parties and stuff that uh, Tamar, who had, had come down a summer to visit us in 40, in the 49, um, uh, ran away. She's picked up by LAPD juvenile. I said, you know, we're going to take you back home. She says, no, it's too terrible. And I said, what do you mean? And she d discloses that she had sex with her father, uh, our father. And uh, big scandal, head of L.A. County Health, arrested for incest. Dad gets uh, the top criminal attorney of that day was a guy named Jerry Geisler. And he was like the Johnny Cochran of his day. Uh, criminal defense had all the top, uh, you know, had all the top actors and actresses. Anyway, three-week trial, dad beats the case. Comes, she, he basically guys paints this teenager, my half-sister Tamar, with a, a, a Tamar the liar brush. She's making it all up. It's all fantasy. Beats the case. He then, in early 1950, splits the country, leaves, and he's off to Hawaii, remarries there, uh, remarries there, goes to the Philippines with a Filipino wife, has four more children. Uh, breaks up from them after about four years, hooks up with June in the late 60s. They're traveling together for 10 years. 
He's constantly coming back to LA in and out or to the United States on a regular basis every year. Anyway, finally in 1990, he decides to uh, relocate back to the United States after being out for 50 years. They relocate to San Francisco, get a high rise on the 39th floor. I hook back up with him after this estrangement. We become close or as close as possible. And uh, so I spend the last nine years of his life uh, with him and, and, you know, communicating. And I was very close. To my, I loved my father because obviously of all these, you know, all of this, these amazing abilities he had. And um, so now basically he dies and we've talked about the passing. So we're back to the phone call with Tamar. <laughs> so I'm talking to him, her on the phone and she says, uh, you know, we're talking about the great man's remarkable life and all of this. What an amazing human being he was. And she says, well, you know, Steve, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I said, what are you saying, Tamar? Where the hell is this coming from? She says, well, he didn't do it, but he was a suspect. Uh, the police that were taking me to trial on the on the incest back and forth said they thought he was the Black Dahlia killer. And of course, I said, well, there's no way. I mean, I dad had his faults and I knew he had a hang up with sex and stuff. Eleven, He's now got 11 children by five different wives. <laughs> And I said, but no, murder, no, there's no way. I'll be able to show he had nothing to do with this. So basically, um, I jump in, in thinking I'll be able to clear him in a hot second. And uh, I relocate, actually, I'm, I'm divorced by then, and my boys are off to college and stuff. So I, I relocate back to L.A. in 19, or two, 2001 and start my investigation. Uh, two years later, uh, I've got it all together, and much to my surprise, uh, basically, uh, rather than proving him innocent, I've made a, a watertight case that he actually was, in fact, the killer. I go in secret to an active DA, present my case. Uh, he reviews it. And the other startling thing was, John, that uh, that not only was he uh, good for the, the Black Dahlia murder, Elizabeth Short, but he was also good for a number of other lone woman murders. And I lay them out. There's actually, uh, I discover, I will eventually discover that LAPD was looking at five or six. I actually came up with 14 that I think he's good for from the from 1943 to when he split. So not only is he the Dahlia killer, but he's a serial killer. And um, I present my case in secret to the head DA. He comes back and says, well, a lot of these look really good. I think you're probably right, but I would I would file. You know, there's enough here to win in court, and I would file on two cases: Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, and I would also file on Jean French, the red lipstick murder that happened three weeks after the Dahlia murder. He says those I could win. I would file, and I would win in court. He says the others you're probably right, but I have a high bar, so I wouldn't file those. But you're probably right. So with that, you know. Uh, huge, you know, all kinds of controversy. I said, okay, I'll go ahead and publish the book. I wrote it up, published the book. And then, of course, you know, all sorts of, you know, for, lots of documentaries, 48 hours, Dateline, they all covered it. And uh, typical controversy, oh, this is a daddy dearest thing. And, you know, all kinds of people had their own positions on who done it and stuff. So basically, uh, it's been ongoing ever since. And, uh, 
It's now what I think uh, six six books are out now. It's really one ongoing investigation covering all of these various crimes that that followed. And uh, so twenty years later, six books later, and I've got. Um, I think I will finally finish it with the early years, which will be out probably in about a year. Uh, next year, 2022, I hope to have the early years, which are pre-Dahlia crimes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, he... Sorry it was such a long narrative, but it... it no, became, that's... And I spend a third of the book, you know, talking about his life, obviously, because it's important for readers to understand this guy and, you know, his personal madness. And, and there's so many aspects to it. Yeah, I want to dive into some of those details because some of the background that you just laid out is very important to uh, kind of the connections that you would later make. And one of those things is, uh, you know, him driving cab, working as a journalist and and doing these ride-alongs with law enforcement uh, because the Black Dahlia killer later on would, you know, use journalists to kind of taunt the police and play kind of this game. And then uh, obviously his his role as the head of venereal disease. And I believe you also found out that he had connections to a, um, a legal abortion ring as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So so the book comes out, okay, and, and is published, and it's a big controversy. Well, within a month or two, um, the, Steve Lopez is a, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He's, he's highly, he's well-liked well by... Uh, Angelinos and, and and people across the nation, uh, and he came. Uh, actually, I went to him before the book published, and I said, "Hey, here's a book. Here's the book. Read it. You know, I think you'll find it interesting." So he scans it quickly, and and he goes to LAPD and says, "Hey, there's this retired homicide detective from Hollywood that says his daddy is the Black Dahlia killer." He says, uh, and they LAPD says, uh, "Go away. We don't talk about unsolved cases." So he goes to the DA, uh, Steve Cooley, and he says, hey, there's this Hodel guy, and you know he thinks he's solved the Black Dahlia murder, yada. And Cooley says, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayer's money on a 50-year-old case. He says, but you know, there is a file, there is this file, secret uh, file in the vault, he says, on the Black Dahlia, would you like to see that? <laughs> Can you imagine? Lopez, yeah, you know. So he, <laughs> Absolutely. He goes down to the vault, he opens it up, they take out this box. He gives it to uh, Lopez. He goes upstairs, sits down, opens up the file, and out falls a picture of Dr. George Hill Hodel. He goes, whoa, he was a suspect. Well, he gets into the file, and he discovers these secret files that have never been seen by anybody for 50 years. And he discovers that, in fact, Dr. George Hill Hodel was the prime suspect all along. More than that, he discovers that a team of 18 detectives half of them from LAPD, half from the DA's office, formed a task force. They pick up Hodel in, back in 1950. They bring him in for questioning on it. And while he's being held at the DA's office, they go out and they break into this Mayan temple, our home, and they put bugs, microphones in the walls, uh, in the bedroom and in the living room. And, and these aren't phone taps, these are actual live microphones. They run a hard wire from the house to, along the telephone lines to uh, to Hollywood detectives to the basement, 18 detectives 24-7 for five weeks. So they're listening in to these live conversations uh, around the clock. 
And of course, they come up with a whole bunch of damning uh, admissions and confessions by George. He's talking to people. He's talking to one that's a possible accomplice and stuff. And all of these conversations, which I'll, I can read you a few of the quotes, but they, they come up with this. Um, but the real key to understanding the, the why of the cover-up, and they say, why would LAPD cover up such a crime? Well, the real key is, I'm reading these trans... So Lopez does a couple of quick articles, says, hey, he was a suspect, blah, 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 and leaves it at that. You know, he didn't get into the weeds of it. So I go down to D.A. Cooley and I say, hey, can I make copies? And, and I, he's, to his credit, Cooley says, well, I, I let him. I guess I have to let you. <laughs> so I made copies of everything, spent four months going through it, laying it all out. And it was just amazing. And I'm reading this transcript, 146-page tra transcript summary of all the conversations. And it says, um, you know, George Hodel and uh, Baron Haringa, who was a friend of his, go down to the basement. It says, an object is struck. A woman screams. More blows. A woman screams again. And then it's silent. And I'm looking at this, and I think, what the hell? They're five minutes away. Why aren't the detectives out the door over there and doing a rescue? They do nothing. So basically, and, and you know, to this day, I, I can come up with a whole bunch of reasons why they didn't. The, the best scenario is, you know, it was only the third day of the stakeout. Uh, bugging and maybe they thought well maybe he's into kinky sex maybe they're just having sex it's all quiet now what do we do we don't want to blow you know this we don't want to blow the bugging so that's the best thing i can look at anyway regardless of what why they didn't they didn't and um it, it either was a major assault or i think more likely it was a murder because he says right after the the, the blows are heard it says don't leave a trace of anything he's telling the so clearly, I think, I think what, and you have kind of have to understand LA was a real life LA confidential back then. You know, it, it was a lot of corruption. Uh, Parker was about to take command, literally was two months away from becoming chief. And I think they kind of made a Machiavellian decision. You know, it was like, okay, look, we could uh, reveal this. We won't be able to take power. It'll, you know, stop us from doing the things we want to do. Maybe we should just lock it away for now and come back to it at a future time. You know, but let's clean up Dodge, get rid of all the corruption, and then we can come back to this. I think that's that was my take on how, their interpretation. And because Parker did do a lot of good, he, you know, he did do a lot of cleaning up and getting rid of all that old corruption, which he originally was a part of. So anyway, that's the main reason why the cover up and uh there are a whole bunch of things that I add on to that and we discover. But I think that was the main motive for, 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 and the other factor was that dad split the country. Literally right then within, he was about to be arrested by the DA's guys because they had enough. He split the country, uh, country in 1950. And I think that probably added to their thinking, look, he's gone. Maybe we could find him. Maybe we can't. If we bring him back, maybe he gets Jerry Geisler and kicks our butt again. You know, let's let he's out of the country. And of course, the other thing was uh, that he would have disclosed a whole lot of stuff. You know, he was basically untouchable. And, and uh, there were, was an abortion ring, even on the tape. He's, uh, I'll, read you, I'll read you just a few of the uh, comments from, from the tape to give you an idea of uh, uh, what, what he said. 
uh, let me get them here. Let's see. So he says these are from very. This is the best path. Okay, these are actual quotes from the recorded uh, detectives' recordings. This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. You don't have the right connections. Made in the DA's office. Don't confess ever. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Well, his they investigated him a year and a half earlier for the mur suspected overdose murder of his secretary. Um, the FBI were over to see me three weeks ago, he says. And he goes on to say, don't say anything on the phone. I think it's tapped. I have your phone. I'll have to call you. And then he cops to killing his secretary, put a pillow over her head, covered her with a blanket, got a taxi, called Georgia Street Receiving. Uh, expired at, She expired at 1239. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, maybe they figured it out, killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. And then one of the last comments was, I'm in trouble, the Black Dahlia passport. The police have a picture of me and the girl. I thought I had destroyed all of them. And that's just some of them. We don't have time to go into all of it, but but very, you know, very condemning stuff. And um, so that's the basic reason, I think, why the, why the cover-up, you know. that, And, you know, my two greatest heroes, the... The, the detective in charge of the Black Dahlia investigation was Chief Thad Brown, chief of detectives. And Thad Brown and Parker were our two greatest LAPD heroes, okay, historically. They were my heroes. When I came on, they were both on, still on the job and, and my heroes. And um, so I think, you know, LAPD's position is they can't defeat my evidence. They can't argue that it's not solved. All they can do is say, we don't have time to look at it. And that's been their position all along. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend and leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Join me next week for the conclusion of George Hodel and the Black Dahlia. And until then, thanks for listening to From the Void.